0: You know, over the years, I've been very troubled at the way many ministries, churches, and even people do evangelism. I'm very troubled by what I see. Now, I'm not claiming to be the world's greatest evangelist, because I am certainly not that, but as I have seen gimmicks, and fads, and methods, and tactics, to try to get people to accept Jesus, whatever that means, I've been very troubled by what I see. Now, don't get me wrong. It's not all bad. There is great stuff happening all over the world. That is not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, as I see Christ peddled like some wizard to make you rich in the prosperity gospel, as I see seeker-sensitive churches strip down the gospel to make it more appealing, As I see calls to repentance removed, submission to the lordship of Jesus Christ avoided, as I see God made small and man made big and sin avoided and hell removed and the offense of a bloody cross minimized, I cannot help but be very troubled by what I see. And I know you see it too. Bottom line, we just don't know how to call people to repentance anymore. And my point is, when it comes to doing evangelism and calling people to be saved, I think we could take a page out of Isaiah's book. And by that, I mean literally the page that's found in Isaiah chapter 55, because it is nothing less than a call to repentance. To repent and believe, and embrace, and submit, and find your deepest joy in Yahweh as your greatest treasure. It is a call to Israel to repent, deaf, and dumb, and blind, and guilty, and vile, and apostate. Isaiah 55, you understand, it is a summons to repent and believe. And you remember, I hope, you remember, I hope that chapters 49 through 55 of Isaiah, they're a logical unit with a message. Every chapter alternates back and forth between poems of the Messiah and the salvation he will bring. Do you see that in your notes if you've got them? Servant poem, salvation for the world. Servant poem, salvation for the world. And yet here's the thing (laughs) about chapter 55 is that in this chapter, Isaiah breaks the pattern. Listen carefully. Having clearly revealed that the Messiah and the salvation he will bring in chapters 49 through 54, chapter 55 is the conclusion. It is a summons to be saved, an offer of the kingdom, a salvation invitation for sinners to repent. You understand the table is set, the meal is ready, and now is the time to feast at the banquet That's why the title of the sermon is water, wine, bread, and milk, because get this, the language that God uses to call them to repent is the summons to a meal, to partake of a feast, to delight in abundance, to flee from sin and embrace the king and savor the riches of eternal life. That is chapter 55, and that is a call to repent. And mark my words, they will repent. Isaiah is clear about this. The prophets are clear. Christ is clear. The apostles are clear. Revelation is clear. The people of Israel will repent and they will receive every single promise and guarantee God ever promised to give them. They will repent. And yet, here's the thing about this call to repentance it isn't only to Israel, but to any and all who will come to the waters. It's for any and all who are done slurping the mud from the puddles of sin. It's for any and all who are sick of the scraps of sin and ready to dine at the feast of redemption. It's for any and all who know that they have nothing to offer God except the sins that need to be forgiven. It's for any and all who despair in their worthless works to save them, and who cast themselves upon Jesus Christ alone. And this morning, I'm going to preach this call to repentance to you. To you. Not because you're not already saved, but because because we need to hear God's heart for perishing people. We need to learn better how to call people to repentance. And yet at the very same time, I am no under, I'm not under the illusion that every single person in this room truly does know Jesus Christ. There may be some here whom the Bible describes as spiritually dead and slaves to sin. There might be some in this room whom the Bible describes as blinded by the devil and children of wrath and enemies of God. And yet think, if that is you, think of the sheer mercy of God in your life. (laughs) That you have defied God and ignored God and rebelled against God your entire life long to preserve you alive for this moment. Here. (laughs) To hear again the life-giving gospel of Jesus Christ. And here again, the offer to dine at the feast of salvation through Isaiah. And so whether you think you're saved and you're not, or you know you're not saved and you need to be, either way, either way, may your soul be the kind of soil this morning where the seed of the word may grow. May your heart, dead as stone and cold as ice, be broken and melted and removed and replaced by a living, breathing, hungry heart that longs to feast upon the bread of life. The meal is ready, the table is set. Let's hear the call to repent. This morning I want you to see four ways. Four ways to call a sinner to repent and be saved. Four ways to call a sinner to repent and be saved and seize the joy of the kingdom to come. That's where we're going. Four ways to call a sinner to repent and be saved and seize the joy of the kingdom. And the first way is this. Number one, you invite the thirsty to eschatological waters. You invite the thirsty to end times waters. Yahweh does that very thing in verses 1 and 2. Look at the text. And notice how God begins, Ho, or even, oh, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He's just pleading with people. And whether it's ho or oh, the point is the same. God is getting people's attention, all our attention. And notice the people God has in mind. Verse 1, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why? Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your labor for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and literally delight your soul in abundance. That is how to call people to repent. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. Meaning what, who are the thirsty? And what are these waters? And what does it mean to come to these waters? And I know exactly what Isaiah means by these waters because he has told us again and again and again, get this, I believe that these waters to which he refers are eschatological waters. I believe these are kingdom waters. The reason I say that is because seven times since chapter 30, the prophet has mentioned water as a feature of the future kingdom. And I think it's the literal water that Isaiah describes in those passages. He says it again and again, that, that when the king comes, when the Messiah comes, streams will flow in the wilderness. Rivers will flow in the deserts. Dry and barren lands will be lavish and tropical, growing trees and bearing fruit. The point is, water is used by a prophet by the prophets as a picture that paradise will be regained, that Eden will be restored. And that's exactly what I think this that's exactly what this is in Isaiah 55, verse 1. And so listen very carefully. The call to come to the waters isn't just a Vivid analogy of satisfaction or some appeal to human emotion. Listen carefully. It is an actual invitation to join the Messiah in his future kingdom. That's what it is. You can drink those waters one day if you repent and believe today. And so what that means then, what that means is that faith, get this, the thirsty, these are people who are done drinking the puddles of sin. They're done. The thirsty are those who are done drinking from the sewers of iniquity. The thirsty, these are people who are done With the poisonous pleasures offered by the world, bottom line, these are people ready to repent of sin and yield their lives to Jesus Christ, knowing that no matter that anything they give up to follow Christ is like drinking sand in comparison. He goes on in verse one, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And come, buy, and eat. Come, buy, without money and without cost, wine and milk i mean can you see what he's doing here how he how he pleads with ruined sinners this is so profound notice you who have no money come by and eat i'm calling the people who have no money i'm telling you to come and buy something well how do you do that exactly how do you buy goods without currency How do you purchase something without money? That's not how economics works, but it is how salvation works, isn't it? Because you see, if you buy it with no money, it means it is free. Which means at the end of the day, listen carefully, thirst is faith. Thirst is faith. A humble Broken, idle, crushing faith that longs for God as the fountain of the soul. That's exactly what he means here. You cannot earn it. You cannot bargain for it. You cannot trade for it. There's no exchange of goods. There's no negotiation here. It is absolutely free by faith, but it is not cheap. It is not cheap. Salvation is not cheap. The kingdom is not cheap because it was bought, Peter said, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but bought with the precious blood of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. You understand the payment's been made, right? The bill has already been paid. And now all hell-deserving sinners have to do is buy it for free with the currency of faith. And I love what he says. Come buy and eat. Eat. Again, not completely metaphorical. All right, it's not just a helpful analogy that helps us understand what it means. No, there, there's, there's about a half a dozen places in the Bible, get this, that speak of a lavish feast to come in the kingdom of the Messiah. Isaiah 25 verse 6 describes a feast to come in the kingdom. Luke 13, 29 says that there will be a great great feast in the kingdom to which the nations will come. Christ said in Matthew 22 that he will eat and drink with us in the kingdom of God. Several times the kingdom is described as the feast at a wedding. Do you see? After a while you get the impression that this language is not totally Symbolic, but that there actually will be some kind of banquet in the kingdom to which all of the nations are summoned. That's what this is. It's on the calendar. It's on the schedule. And, and, and so you understand that this call to come and eat, get this, is nothing less than an invitation to repent and dine with the king in the splendor of his glory. It's a call to repent. And that is a powerful way to call people to be saved, isn't it? And the question is, the question for you is, will I see you at this banquet? Will I see you at the banquet? Is is there a seat reserved at the table for you? Will you be there sitting at the table, dining with the redeemed for all the ages? Because you know, don't you? You know how to get your name on the list of the invited, don't you? The only way, the only way to get a spot reserved at the kingdom feast is by the admission fee of the blood of the lamb. The meal isn't free. It comes with a cost. Every seat at the table has to be paid for by the sin-bearing death of Jesus Christ in the place of sinners. You remember what Christ said to Nicodemus, right? Unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. And so have you been bought by the blood of the lamb and are you born again? It's a fair question. And we need to answer this. Because mark my words, the happy meal of the world's delights may fill us for a time. The sin laden calories of iniquity may give the impression of true satisfaction for a while, but all they really are is fattening people for the slaughter. And so I beg you, in all seriousness, don't be a fool. Don't be a fool. Smell through the text the fragrance of the feast. Hear the summons of the lamb. Heed the call of the king to dine at the table of the kingdom because for a limited time only, for a limited time only, there is room at the table for you. And speaking of eating, notice what's on the menu. He says, without money and without cost, come buy wine and and milk. Well, that's unfortunate. Are those the only options on the menu? What if you don't drink wine? What if you're lactose intolerant? And that's not the point. You see, God is making a connection here. A very particular theological connection. And he is expecting very careful readers of the Bible to get that connection. Because get this, get this. There is one place in the Bible before this moment where wine and milk are mentioned together in the context of the kingdom. And it is in Genesis 49 verse 12 where it speaks of a lion that comes from the tribe of Judah and reigns as the king you see? Which means this call to buy wine and milk is nothing less than a call to embrace the Messiah himself. Who is the bread of life? Who is the fountain of the soul? Who is the feast of the soul? And my question for you is, do you, do you have this thirst? Do you have this hunger? Do, do you have this faith? Do you want the water and the wine and the bread and the milk of the kingdom and the Lord Jesus Christ? Because speaking of bread, look at the tasty logic there in verse 2. Look how God reasons with sinners. Why, he asks. Why do you spend money for what is not bread? And your labor for what does not satisfy Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight your soul in abundance. God is the ultimate evangelist, isn't he? The ultimate evangelist. His words like light reveal and expose the deepest caverns of the soul. And notice he confronts the folly of unrepentant sinners. This this interrogation, why do you spend money for what is not bread and your labor for what does not satisfy? You could tell God is not looking at their budget necessarily, questioning their spending habits, how they use their money. Instead, he is asking, listen carefully, what he is asking is, why do you look to things other than me to satisfy your soul? Why do you set your hope and your joy in things that can never, ever provide it? Why do you seek meaning and significance and satisfaction in things that were never designed to supply it? Because that's true, isn't it? Anything other than God to which we look for ultimate meaning and significance and satisfaction and we will be bitterly disappointed in the end. The question is, what do you spend your money on? What do you pour out your labor upon to gain and acquire not literal money of course but 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 the question is what are you looking for in your life for satisfaction To what do you seek ultimate meaning and significance and satisfaction? Because understand, if it is not God and who all that he is in Christ, it is not bread, it will not satisfy, but instead only a dangerous plummeting of your soul into misery and sin, if you're not there already. Because Israel, these poor people, for centuries they sought hope, And joy and meaning and significance and so many other things in Yahweh. And as a result, they grew restless and joyless and cynical and and wicked as a nation. And so listen to how Yahweh pleads with them. Verse 2, listen carefully to me. Literally in the Hebrew, be listening to me and keep on listening. Eat what is good, and delight your soul in abundance. Again, eat means faith. It's faith. Eat means believe God is who he is and trust him for who he is. To eat from God means you look to God to be and do what nothing else in the universe can do. Namely, satisfy the deepest longings of your soul. Because to be sure, to be sure, I'm certain that your theology of God is good. You know that God is a creator. You know that God is a king. You know that God is a ruler and a lawgiver and a judge. And yes, he is even a father. But do not forget, beloved, that God is is also a fountain and a feast and the portion and the glory and the reward and the great treasure of our souls. Psalm 34, 8, taste and see that Yahweh is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Psalm 107.9, he has satisfied the thirsty soul and the hungry soul he has filled with what is good. And what is good, verse 1 tells us, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. Don't you see, all that God is in his infinite perfections is the treasure our hearts were made to enjoy. And that's exactly what Isaiah means when he scrawls with his pen in big, bold Hebrew letters, eat what is good and delight in abundance. And this is a call to repent. This is how he calls people to repent. And you can hear it in the next phrase, verse three, incline your ear and come to me, listen, and your soul will live. In other words, I want you to lean in real close and I want you to listen to me. Come to me, he says, meaning You need to change your direction. You need to turn around. You don't have to crash and burn. You don't have to be destroyed. You don't have to ruin yourself. Come to me, he says, and your soul will live. You will live, he says. Meaning you are dead now, but you will be made alive. Live, meaning life, how you were created to live, namely, supremely satisfied in God as the fountain of the soul. What does he mean? What does he mean? But the eternal joy of sinless delight forever and ever in the kingdom and beyond. And you in this room, you can have that. You can have that for the high and lofty price of the blood of the son shed for sinners. You remember Isaiah 53, right? Remember that he was pierced for transgressions. He was crushed for iniquities. Led like a lamb to the slaughter. He bore the sin of many. And I would be a wretched man if I did not ask you this morning, have you yielded to the Son, Jesus Christ? Have you done so? Have you despaired in your worthless works to save you? And have you cast yourself upon Jesus Christ alone? Have you renounced all other gods and pursuits, and entanglements, and lusts, and have you given yourself to God alone through Christ because this is the way of life eternal? The second way to call sinners to repent, these will be shorter than that. Second way to call sinners to repent and believe, number two, you make an offer of an everlasting covenant. You make an offer of an everlasting covenant. Here's what I mean. Look at verses 3 and 4. He says, incline your ear and come to me. Listen and your soul will live. Here it is. And I will make an everlasting covenant with you according to the faithful mercies shown to David. Behold, I have appointed him as a witness to the peoples, a ruler and commander to the peoples. Two things should have stood out to you from that text. Number one, the mention of a covenant and number two, the mention of David. Those things are really important. They go together and what they do is they raise two very important questions for us. Number one, what is this covenant? What is the covenant? And number two, who is this David? Who is he? Because he may not be the David that you think. So let's begin with the first one. What is this covenant? And the covenant, you know, when you think about the Bible, the covenant is a promise, right? It's a pledge. It's a guarantee. It's a contract. It's a deal. Bottom line, a covenant is a promise of salvation. And while there are lots of covenants in the Bible to choose from, I believe that the covenant here is the covenant purchased and sealed by the blood of Jesus Christ. I think this covenant here is the new covenant, and you know about that covenant because it is the very same covenant Jesus mentioned in the upper room when he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. I think the covenant here in the text is that covenant, the new covenant, the covenant of salvation, the one that saves ruined sinners and reconciles them to God, that covenant How do we know? Well, notice how the covenant is described. And just so you know, this will be the hardest part of the sermon, but it's the most important part of the sermon. So gear up. Notice how he describes the covenant. I will make with you an everlasting covenant. Here it is. According to the faithful mercies shown to David. Is that what your version says? Or something similar to that? Because here's the thing, the phrase according to is not in the Hebrew. The phrase according to is not in the Hebrew. It just actually says this, I will make with you an everlasting covenant, the faithful mercies of David. That's what the Hebrew says. You hear the difference? The phrase according to is not there. And the faithful mercies are not the ones given to David. Notice carefully, they are the ones given from David to us. Are you tracking with me so far? And what I'm saying is, what I'm saying is, this is chewy, I know, but what I'm saying is the faithful mercies or loving kindnesses of David defines what the covenant is. It explains what the covenant contains. This is what is offered to sinners, Let's try this on for size. If I said to you, hey, I'm going to give to you a new car, a beautiful piece of machinery straight from the factory. You know that beautiful piece of machinery defines what the new car is, right? That's the grammar of this text. I will make with you an everlasting covenant. The faithful mercies of David. Do you see? That's what the covenant contains. That's what the covenant offers. The faithful mercies of David given to people like us who need them. That is the point. David, you see, is the one who gives these mercies to sinners, which leads us to the second question, who is this David? Who is this David? And here's the thing. This is not the David of the past. This is the David of the future. This is not the David of history. This is the David of eschatology. See where I'm going with this? In other words, the David here mentioned in the text, listen carefully, is the one who comes from David's line. The one who comes from David's line. You remember that God made a promise to David that a king would come from his family line and he would reign forever. That's who this David is because here's the thing. When the prophets wanted to talk about the Messiah to come, they would simply call him David. David was code for the Messiah. David was shorthand, a shortcut for the Messiah, and I'll prove it to you. Look at your notes, if you have them. By the way, we always keep them right outside the door in a little stand, so if you want to follow along, they're always there. But listen carefully to Ezekiel 37. as a promise of the future coming at the end of the age. Listen for David. Yahweh says, I will save them, Israel, and I will cleanse them and they will be my people and I will be their God and my servant David will be king over them. He had been dead for hundreds of years at this point and yet he would be king in the future. And they, Israel, will live on the land which I gave to my servant Jacob and they will, where their fathers dwelt and they will dwell there forever. And David, my servant, will be their prince forever. Do you see? That is exactly what Isaiah is doing here in verses three and four. It's not the David of the past. It's the David of the future. This is the Messiah. Because look at verse four. Speaking about David. God says, Behold, I have given him as a witness to the peoples, a ruler and commander to the peoples. Do you see? That was never true of historical David. He was never the ruler or commander over the nations. But the one from David's line will be ruler and commander over the nations. And so you see what this is, don't you? Do you see what this is? This is code for the Messiah and the salvation he will bring. It's the new covenant. The new covenant he bought with his blood. The the infinite riches of redemption that he purchased with his death. That's what this is. And my question for you is, have you agreed to the terms of the covenant? Have you believed and embraced and yielded and submitted to the King of the Covenant? Have you bowed to him and declared your allegiance to him? Because you understand, don't you? The death of Jesus Christ doesn't magically change anything about your soul. Just the fact that it happened in history doesn't automatically make you okay with God. No. You've got to believe. You've got to repent and believe and yield to Jesus Christ as the king and, and allegiance and treasure of your soul. You, you need to have thirsty submission to a sin bearing Savior who satisfies the deepest longings of the soul. Because you understand, don't you? You understand true biblical faith. People say all the time, Well, I, I have faith, I believe. Well, that's good. But can we at least define what the Bible says faith is? True biblical saving faith is not some negotiation where we add Jesus to a long list of things that compete for our affections. No. True biblical faith that saves the soul is the kind that sees all other things as worthless compared to Jesus Christ. That is faith. Isn't that exactly what Christ said in Matthew 16? If anyone wishes to come after me, let him take up a cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever wishes to to lose his life for my sake will find it. What does it profit a man to gain the world and forfeit his soul? What can a man give in exchange for his soul? And what's the answer? Nothing. Even if you could somehow possibly gain the entire world, but not have Christ, you have gained nothing. Nothing. And so again, I ask you, do you have this faith? I'm, I'm legitimately asking you to consider this, and not because I'm doubting it, but because we need to ask the question. We're going we're to just wrestle with the terms of the text as it's presented to us. Do you have this faith? Have you joyfully yielded to the king? Have you submitted to the David, the new and better David, the sin-bearing savior who alone fulfills the deepest longings of the soul? And look, look where, look where Yahweh goes in verse 5. This is so beautiful. It's speaking of the kingdom. He takes him to the future in verse 5, all the way to the kingdom of David at the end of the age, and notice the promise. This is in the future. Behold, Israel, a nation that you do not know you will call, and a nation who doesn't know you will run to you. Because of Yahweh, your God, even the Holy One of Israel, for he, it should say, he will glorify you. Do you see what this is? This is a picture of the future when Israel receive every single promise God ever promised to give. And what it describes is their role and their prominence on the earth in the future. Do, do you see that there? There's going to come a time. In the future, the Messiah will have already come, taken his seat on the throne in Jerusalem, and Israel will be there in Jerusalem, in Zion, and guess what they're going to do? They're going to send out invitations to nations they don't know. Hey, you want to come over? You want to come over and eat with us? I I do. They will send out RSVPs to nations, and nations will accept the RSVPs. And what does the text say they will do? They will run to them. And dine with the king and the splendor of his glory and Israel will be the hosts. And what I'm saying is, if you repent and believe, you can be there for one of those meals. Third way. Third way to call sinners to repent. Number three, you summon sinners to exceeding compassion. You summon sinners to exceeding compassion. Here, Isaiah turns up the heat just a little bit. He explains and defines exactly what repentance is, and you can see it in the text. Look at verses 6 and 7. And the table has been set, the meal has been laid, the offer has been presented, and now what do you got to do? Now you got to repent. Here is repentance Seek Yahweh while he may be found, call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to Yahweh, for he will have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. That is a call to repentance. And that language in verse 6 is shocking, isn't it? Wait a minute. Wait a minute. You mean to tell me the time will come when Yahweh can't be found? Wait a minute, you you mean, are you saying that there will come a time when God won't be near? When he will rescind the offer of salvation and close the door of grace? Isaiah, is that what you're saying? That is exactly what he is saying. Which makes sense, doesn't it? God has has the right to remove the offer of salvation whenever he darn well pleases. He is not obligated to extend salvation to sinners indefinitely, let alone at all. While it's being offered, while it's being offered, now is the time to move and trust him for his grace. Do you see? This is serious. (laughs) I mean, this, this is legitimately, God is saying in the text, you better repent now because you may not have a chance to later. Because you understand, don't you? There is, there is a such thing in the Bible as being beyond repentance. That's a thing. <laughs> the, the sinner's own heart may become too hardened to repent. You know that, right? The hardening effects of sin can so fester and grow that repentance and faith can get to the point of being impossible. Hebrews 6, verse 6. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. It's not too late yet. It's not too late. The window of grace and the door of mercy is closing at this very moment. You know that. But it is not too late yet. There is still time to repent and flee the wrath to come. And speaking of repentance, look how he defines it in verses 6 and 7. Look at the verbs in verses 6 and 7. Seek Yahweh. Call upon him. Verse seven, let the wicked forsake his way and literally the unrighteous man his thoughts. You see, that is repentance. That is repentance. Seek and call and forsake and return. Do you know what it means to seek Yahweh? You know what that means? That means to stop living for yourself and for sin and to make Yahweh the greatest treasure and allegiance of your life. Have you done so? And then you notice, to call upon him. What what, what does it mean to call upon him? Except that you ask him for mercy and plead for his grace. You you, you appeal to his pity to apply the payment of his son to you. Verse 7, notice, don't don't brush by these. Verse 7. To repent means that you are convinced that you are a wicked person, even down to the very thoughts that you think and that you are done and ready to leave those things behind and you are ready to yield to God as the treasure of your soul. Are you ready this morning? Are you ready for that? Because could you hear the praises of Christ in heaven? And could you hear the screams of the damned in hell? You would not hesitate to repent. Especially since God is so eager and willing to forgive. Look at the end of verse 7. Let the wicked return to Yahweh. Here it is. And he will have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly forgive. See that? Compassion. Compassion for sinners, not. Dry, obligatory, begrudging, half-hearted, reluctance. No, sovereign compassion from the living God on sinners' compassion. God loves sinners. And he, and he loves to save them. In and through his son. And the verse 7, return to our God, for he will abundantly forgive. What does that mean that he will abundantly forgive? It means that there is no sin beyond the reach of God's forgiveness. And yet you know, don't you, that God does not forgive sin willy-nilly, does he? Is that what God does? He just sweeps sin under the rug of the universe? Pretend like it didn't happen. Oh, that's fine. No big deal. No sweat. No. No, absolutely not. There has to be a payment, doesn't there? There has to be an atonement, doesn't there? There must be a ransom. There has to be a substitute. A sacrifice must be offered. You understand, if we cried as many tears as our drops in the ocean, it would never atone for sin. We could scrape our bloody fingers down to the bone as an attempt to earn our salvation and it would only lead to hell. No, the price for peace was the punishment of the son. What kind of God is this? Who would treat his son as sinners deserve? What kind of God is this? Who would crush his own son, and cause him to suffer. And that's the point of verses 8 and 9. God is not like us. Look at the text. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And people love to quote those verses, don't they? Hey, God's ways are not our ways. Hey, you know, his thoughts are not our thoughts. And and as if the text is only saying, well, God is not like us. Well, that's, that's patently obvious. Everybody knows that. It's the way that God is not like us that's the point here. The point here, get this now. What makes God different from us is that he is willing to forgive and save such wicked and wretched people who deserve his wrath. That's how God is different than us. Because some of us are willing to hold on to grudges till the day we die. Some of you have some of those right now. You're holding on to something. You're gonna hold on to it. You're gonna go to that with the grave. I hope not. Some people are willing to have bottles of bitterness and carry those things to the tomb for people's minor and petty offenses against them. And trust me, no matter how much you have been offended by another human being, it is small and minor compared to the infinite offenses we have committed against the Almighty. And yet, God made him who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We are not like this God. God is not like us. And my question is, do you know this God? Do you know him? Not, Not do you merely know about him. Not not do you check off Christianity as your religion of choice on a census. What I mean is have you surrendered your entire life to Jesus Christ as Lord and God and King and Savior and treasure of your soul? Are you absolutely sure that you have done so? Are you sure you have? Have you called upon the Lord while he is near? Have you forsaken your wicked ways and your evil thoughts? Have you turned to him in compassion and forgiveness? Because this offer won't be around forever. The fourth way. The fourth way, then we're done. The fourth way to call sinners to repent and believe, number four, you provide a preview of eternal joy. You provide a preview of eternal joy. In other words, get this, part of the call of repentance as you share the gospel with people is you tell them about the future. I think you should tell people about the kingdom. About the end of the age. I think you should include that in your gospel message. Think about it, because the gospel is not just about your personal forgiveness of your personal sins, right? No, it is about a great king who will come to earth and build his kingdom upon it. You should include that in your gospel presentation to unbelievers, and that is where God goes. Look first where he goes in verses 10 and 11. It's very interesting. Verses 10 and 11, he says, for, it seems to change the subject, but it does connect, and I'll show you how. For even as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there without, literally, the word is, drenching the earth, and causing it to bear, and causing it to sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the one who eats, so my word will be which comes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I delight and without succeeding in the manner for which I sent it. And people love those verses and quote them, and they should. Because it talks about the effectual power of God's word, right? I mean, it's poetry, literal Hebrew poetry. Rain and snow come down from heaven. Waters the earth. Things grow. Harvests come. The word of God comes forth from his mouth. Things happen. People grow. People are changed. Here's the point. Here's the point. Everything God threatens, everything God promises, and everything God commands will be fulfilled. That's the point of verses 10 and 11. Everything God promises, everything God threatens, everything God commands, will be fulfilled. His word is effectual. It is powerful. It is reliable. It is irrevocable. It is supernatural. These are not just empty words. These are not empty promises or threats. This is real. Everything he says will happen. What does it have to do with anything? Here's the point. The reason why God talks about the effectual power of his word here is because his word is the guarantee that the kingdom predicted in the future will come to pass. Look at verses 12 and 13. For you, Israel, you will come forth with joy, and in peace you will be led. The mountains and hills will break forth before you with joy and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn bush, the cypress will come up. Instead of the nettle, the myrtle will come up and it will be a memorial for Yahweh and a sign forever which will not be cut off. It's mysterious, it's cryptic, but what it is is a little tiny glimpse and preview of the kingdom. That's what it is. And if you've been with us in Isaiah, this should sound familiar. This is just a little sample, a cut and paste from all sorts of other passages, which we are to understand. Okay, these are kingdom conditions. This is a preview of the kingdom. The Messiah will have already returned, taken his seat on the throne in Zion. But verse 12, you know what verse 12 is? Get a load of this. Verse 12 portrays the journey of the Jews as they travel back home to Jerusalem in the future. Look what it says. In joy, you will come forth. In peace, you will be led. Picture. Thousands, hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of Israelites in the future flocking from the nations, heading home in peace and joy. They will come forth. And that's the thing. The word, Those very words, peace, joy, and peace, In Isaiah, those are eschatological words. Those are kingdom words. Isaiah only uses those terms in the context of the kingdom. And speaking of joy and peace, that's what you want, isn't it? Isn't it? What you want and desire? Isn't that what every person you know wants and desires? Joy and peace? The only place it's found in full is in the kingdom of the Messiah at the end of the age. Notice, notice verse 12. As they make their journey... The mountains and hills will break before you with joy and all of the trees of the field will clap their hands. That doesn't make sense. Hills can't shout. Trees don't have hands. Well, what this is, get this, this is a picture of paradise regained. That's what this is. This is a picture of paradise regained, that that the curse will be broken, the spell will be removed. This is Romans 8, 19 through 21. If you have your notes, look what it says. It says, for the anxious longing of creation... Get this, creation is waiting for something. What is creation waiting for? The revelation of the sons of God. Creation is waiting. For the creation, verse 20, was subjected to futility. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That is God. Because creation itself, here it is, will be set Free from the slavery of corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. That's what this is. Verse 13. Instead of the thorn bush, the cypress will come up. Instead of the nettle, the the myrtle will come up. This is the removal of sins cursed. Weeds and thorns and all those things are gone. Creation is restored. Eden is renewed. And that's what this is. A curse-free creation is coming in the future. And you should include that in your presentation of the gospel because Isaiah does here. And, And that's how you call people to repent. That's how you do it. You call them to drink from eschatological waters and to dine with the king in the splendor of his glory. You offer people an everlasting covenant in which the king will lavish his people with mercy and grace. You summon people to exceeding compassion for God will forgive all those who come to him broken over their sin. And you tell them of a kingdom, eternal with joy, noisy with praise, free from sin and the glory of Yahweh shining like the sun. I I close with this. My question for you is, have you believed this gospel? Have you believed this gospel Uh, of the God who became man for us and for our salvation? And and maybe you think, maybe you think, well, you know what? I, I can't come to Christ because I am a great sinner. I am a wretched sinner and you would not believe the things that I have done in my life to which I say, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come by and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend your money for what is not bread? Or maybe you think, I can't come to Christ because I am an old sinner Long have I loved my ways. Long have I loved my sin. It is too late for me now, to which I say, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come by and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Seek Yahweh while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Or maybe you think, I can't come to Christ because I'm a hypocrite. I've played the game and pretended for years. What are people going to say if I come out now and admit that I'm not actually a Christian? That is too late for me now, to which I say, come to the water. And you who have no money, come by and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend your money for what is not bread? Eat what is good and delight your soul in abundance. And maybe, finally, maybe you say, I can't come to Christ because I am a trapped sinner. I love my sin. And I am a slave to my sin. And there is no escape for me. To which I say, Come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend your money for what is not bread and your labor for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight your soul in abundance. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to Yahweh for he will have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly forgive. O Lord, we come in one of two groups of people. O Lord, either we are those who have responded to this call or we are those who are resistant to this call. And I suspect there are some resistors out there, Lord. But you know. And Lord, we just pray, we just pray that your word would have a great effect. Oh Lord, that there would be a kind of awakening, a kind of revival of the of the 18th century variety revival without all the weird stuff, Lord. We want to see people, people's lives change. We want to see people regenerated, and we are asking you to do that now. Only you can do that work, Lord. We, we, can't, we can't manipulate people, argue people, logic people into salvation, into the kingdom. Oh, Lord, the one who truly makes disciples is you. The one who makes converts is you. The one who saves souls is you. And so we pray that you would do a mighty and lasting work always and only for the glory of your son. And in his name we pray, amen.